This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Cards issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hey, this is Joe's sister, Nikki. I think I might be the only girl in the world who has a brother who spends his entire day in the basement pretending he has an internet radio show. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's the Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and today we're sharing how money became dangerous. What do we mean by dangerous? Think singing Christmas carols on somebody's doorstep dangerous. What, you don't think that's dangerous? Try interrupting Joe's mom while she's in the middle of a Golden Girls episode and see how that works out for you. More on that later because on today's show, we welcome the guy who wrote the book on how money became dangerous, Chris Varellis. We'll also share during our headline segment how one broker single-handedly took down his whole firm. That's dangerous. Plus, during our Haven Lifeline call, we'll answer a question from Colton, who's having a cash flow crunch. My, is that like a Nestle crunch, maybe? Yum. As always, I'll make sure we save some room for my amazingly dangerous trivia. And now, two guys who consider a well-done steak public danger number one, Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-G. Every time we have steak, Cheryl says, make mine well done. And I'm like, why are we eating steak? Why? That's that uh, chart you can get on the internet that talks about like the different types of steak. There's like blue, you know, and then there's rare, then there's medium rare, and there's medium, and then there's order of the chicken. <laughs> that is Cheryl. <laughs> Every single time she's like, yeah, I'm not a fan of steak. I'm like, that's because you kill it. Because you eat it. You eat it incorrectly. When you eat it the wrong way. You're going to hate it. I, I would not want to eat a 
12 ounce piece of jerky for dinner either. (laughs) Everybody, welcome to Meat Done Right. Meat. Meats done right. Meat day. I am Joe Selsey. I average Joe money on Twitter and across the card table from me today, the most dangerous guy in the room. Well, Chris Ferellis is upstairs. He might have something to say about that. The second most dangerous guy in the room, Mr. OG. I'm very dangerous at many different things. It is super exciting to watch uh, you pretend you're dangerous. My hands are lethal weapons. I had to register them with the state. I wonder if Skillshare has a class on how to teach you to be really dangerous. Probably not. (laughs) But they have tons of classes. There's a comma in the number of classes. Big thanks to Skillshare for supporting Stacky Benjamins. Join the millions of students learning on Skillshare with this special offer. Get two months of limited access to over 27,000 classes and not even one on being dangerous on Skillshare for free. Sign up. Go to Skillshare.com forward slash SB. You're not doing anything over Christmas break anyway. So... Learn. Why don't you learn something. Get your learning on. Go learn something. Big thanks also to Native for supporting Stacky Benjamins, more appropriately for supporting OG, because he sits across the table from me and doesn't stink, which I think is a plus. Native makes safe, simple, effective products that OG uses in the bathroom every day with trusted ingredients, trusted performance. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and enter promo code SB during checkout. We got Chris Varellis here going to have some fun talking about how money became dangerous and yes it has so let's get this started hello darlings and now it's time for your favorite part of the show our stacking benjamin's headlines our first headline comes to us from forbes this is written by david maroli uh he is a brand contributor with impact partners financial headwinds for today's investors Gertrude picked this out. Said it markets to me. up 30% or whatever. But yeah, let's talk about all the headwinds. We're going to talk about headwinds because listen to this. Have you ever flown to Europe for vacation or business? I wonder why she picked this. I have not. If but. so, you probably remember the flight back to the US took a bit longer. A recent flight I took from London to Atlanta took two hours longer than flying from Atlanta to London. Two hour difference in flight time is quite common in late fall and winter due to strong headwinds from the jet stream. Did you know that? I was going to say, did he also go to Bavaria and Southeast Asia? It is incredible. I like these flight references. I think the... They're just going over my head now. It's so me now. Like, I don't even... The analogy taking flight and the principles of flight and applying it to financial planning. I don't think we've done this before. It's, yeah. pr- it's pretty cool. And it's not offensive to me at all. We're, 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 we're gonna, Anymore. We're going to... We're going to skip uh, the parts that talk about wind and how the wind can be super strong. And when planning for wealth accumulation and retirement, people need to understand their finances. We'll also encounter headwinds as a financial advisor and pilot. This guy is also a pilot and a financial advisor. He's, he's like me. You could use these analogies with your clients. I'm going to. I'm going to rebrand the whole thing. I wanted to give you the top headwinds your finances will encounter and maybe a few tailwinds. He thinks he's so clever, by the way. Like, oh, I got an idea. A simple acronym. He throws in an acronym. Oh, there's, yeah. To remember the headwinds by is tiles. Like if I'm ever walking down the street going, I wonder which financial headwinds might affect my portfolio. Oh, tiles. All right, let's hear them. Taxes. Okay. That's, That's the T. Maybe in the future. You live in Texas. This is taxes. It's the same thing. Great barbecue. Benjamin Franklin. 
the namesake of this year podcast, quoted as saying, in this world, nothing is certain except death and taxes. It's crucial to know how much you pay in taxes. You want the best advice possible when attempting to reduce the tax impact on your finances. The answer to that is yes. And there's some simple things, OG, that you can do to reduce taxes on your portfolio. Which are? Number one, I like how you got the pen out. Oh, tell me some of these so I can <laughs> go ahead. Them. I'm listening. Well, well, here's a common mistake that you'll see: people have long-term goals and they have funds that pay dividends outside of an IRA, and those dividends are getting taxed every year, and they're not taking the money. Versus mixing your portfolio around and putting those things with dividends inside your IRA. If you're just going to hold on to it long term, why pay the tax every year on those dividends? Make your portfolio outside your IRA maybe a little more tax efficient and your portfolio inside your IRA a little less tax efficient because you got the tax shelter. Why not use it? I think it's interesting this time of year, people don't pay attention to uh, potential capital gains and dividend announcements for the end of the year for their investment funds. And a lot of times this time of year is when people are thinking about rebalancing and stuff. You got to really pay attention to that. You don't want to own a mutual fund or an ETF that's about to issue a huge capital gain for the year. And you only own it for four days or seven days or whatever. And then you get the tax bill for owning it the entire year. So my thought on taxes for especially this time of year is just kind of pay attention to that. Yeah. The second headwind on this list, inflation. Who knew that was a thing, huh? Wouldn't that be like a wind that comes from below? Did we pass some law against inflation? It, it inflates. Oh, I see where you're going with that. Yes. That's that, that's the hot air ballooning analogy. That's the next article like this. That's exactly right. You know how your portfolio is like a hot air balloon. This is the one, especially people interested in the very aggressive retirement OG that kind of scares me the most because Really, it's this just creeping, slow thing that on a day-to-day basis, you don't notice it. And all of a sudden you go, how did gas get to $2.50 a gallon? I remember back in my day. Yeah. It's like death by a thousand paper cuts. Yeah. Like you think a million's going to be fine. And then you do the math on that and you go, oh, $40,000 today might or might not make it probably won't make it if you do an extreme early retirement. The 4% rule, not meant for that at all. But if you take a look at $40,000 when you're 75 and you're 30 today, not going to be a lot of money. Well, that's the major argument that I have against using fixed income in your portfolio because you're almost destined to lose to inflation, if not barely keep up. And the only hope that you have to offset that is to own companies that profits rise with inflation also. So that's kind of the major point that I have when it comes to equities versus fixed income. And and you're right. I think even not even early retirees, but all people think this way. Like if I could just get this covered by this thing, that's one of the attractive pieces of real estate is that traditionally real estate rents will rise over time. So they kind of sort of increase with inflation. So you can kind of offset your rising costs also. Do an interesting calculation. And you can do this for yourself at home. Take a look at your mortgage taxes or property taxes and your mortgage insurance. And let's say that you just bought a house. It's $400,000. And so your house payments, whatever, two grand a month. And that includes escrow, right? Taxes and insurance. So pay off your house 
fast forward to the paying off your house, but go add inflation at 3% a year on your taxes and insurance for the next 30, 40, 50 years and go figure out how much the taxes and insurance are on your property when your house is paid off. And I think you're going to find that in some cases, in a lot of cases, the taxes and the insurance cost is almost the same as the stupid mortgage payment was when you first started it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, if you're paying 1500 bucks a month right now for housing costs, it's not unheard of that if you add inflation for 30 or 40 years, that when you're 70, your taxes and insurance on your home might be $18,000. So that myth of like, well, I'll have my house paid off. So, you know what I mean? Like those things that like you said that. are kind of sneaky. Yeah. You don't expect that to happen. So inflation is, a big one. inflation is so sneaky. Uh, next up is one that's not, is not sneaky. I almost said not stinky, but it is stinky and sneaky. This episode is brought to you by Native. <laughs> it's, it's loss. Loss. Wealth accumulation, retirement planning, avoiding or minimizing the headwind of loss is directly tied to your risk tolerance. It's crucial for your advisors to have a good understanding of your risk tolerance. I think risk tolerance is overplayed. Said that on yeah. the show recently. I think it's much more about knowing what risk you have to take. A lot of people know their risk tolerance, OG. Very few people know what risk they need to take, which I think is step one. Know what risk you need and then and then see if you can afford to take that risk or if your stomach will stomach that risk. Well, it's looking at it from the from the correct side of the problem, which is here are the resources that I have that I can bring to the table. Here are the resources I've already accumulated. Here's what I can save on an ongoing basis. And now if we have all this data, we have 100 years worth of data about investments and how they behave during good times and not so good times. And if you have a really long view, if you have a long-term horizon, then your time horizon should be 30, 40, 50 years. Buffett said his favorite time horizon is forever. And so that's a good time horizon to use. So then what's the right collection of things, big companies or small companies or international or not international, that produce the result that you need to reach your goals? And then that just is what it is. Yeah. So yeah, it's going to vacillate. It's going to go up and down. Maybe you need seven. Maybe you need you know nine. Maybe you need eight and a half, whatever. Far too few people actually approach it from the perspective of, I am going to take control of my money and tell it what to do. You can hear this when people talk about things like, well, what's the market going to do this year? Or, you know, how do I react to insert political thing going on here or something like that? It's like, who gives a crap what any of that is? I'm telling my money what to do. I'm telling it that I want it to produce an eight and a half percent return. Right now, it might not behave in a one month period. <laughs> Every year. Or a, or a one year period. Yeah. Or a five year period. But I have a hundred years worth of data that says that this stuff has done this over time. Ergo, I suspect it may continue. And every year I get another year's worth of data to feed back into that decision tree to help inform more decisions. And we're not using that to market time. We're not using it to, you know, try to pick the hot area sector this quarter or something like that. But a lot of people look at like, well, I'll just throw my money in this fund and it'll do what it does. And I don't have any control over that. Bullcrap. You do. You have tons of control over it. The last two on these expenses and fees. I think we've talked about expenses and fees a lot. You can read about expenses and fees anywhere. Hard pass. Next is sequence of returns. We've also talked about sequence of returns a lot. I'll tell you what's disappointing. The biggest headwind of all, not on this list. Well, before you get to your number 1A that's not on the list because... You know, obviously, you would have created a better list than uh, this this fella. Let's talk about sequence returns real quick. You said risk tolerance is overplayed. I think this is overplayed. 
people put so much emphasis on like, oh my gosh, what happens if I retire into a bear market? And uh, it's twice as likely, three times more likely that you don't do that. You know, you may, and then you have to make some changes perhaps. Or if you plan correctly, you don't have to make any changes. But so what? More money's lost preparing for this than actually during it, I think. This is one of those examples from Peter Lynch, you know, who ran Magellan for all those years. More money is lost preparing for the next bear market than actually in the bear market. I think this is an example of that. People are so worried about, oh my gosh, what happens if the market goes down for one or two years? So I'm going to be ultra conservative. But now you're in that market timing game. What happens if it doesn't? What happens if you were the guy that retired January 1st, 2019, and you went, well, you never can be too safe. You know, market's down 25%. should be really conservative. Right now, the market's up 25% for the year. Preventing that mistake by focusing on the more likely thing to happen would have probably given you a four-year head start. You know, if you're planning on 6 7 8% in your portfolio and you got 25 in one year, you're three years ahead of the game automatically. But instead, you were super conservative because of the sequence of returns risk. Which is my number one. Nowhere on here, the number one biggest headwind of all is you. Your behavior, messing up your own portfolio, getting in your own way. Yeah. Oh, far better. Hey, I, I use the cheapest fund of all, and I haven't saved a dime into it. <laughs> but it's really cheap. But it's inexpensive. I'm going to get there never, but I'm going to get there inexpensively. I'll take somebody who doesn't know anything about risk tolerance, knows zip about investment fees, knows, knows nothing except put some money into a growth-oriented mutual fund. Don't even look at the fees. I pay commissions up front. I'm paying a ton of money in my expense ratio, but I'm socking but I'm saving a ton. But I'm socking away tons of money. I will take that person all flipping day over the professor that knows everything about fees who hasn't saved a dime. I thought you said we were going to skip the fee discussion. Think no. we think we did, but I oh we skipped it. Home. Okay, yes, yes. That's Joe skipping it. You're right. That was my Catholic upbringing right there, <laughs> rearing its ugly head. No, 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 no. I got to make people feel guilty about this one more time. Yeah. But behavior is the single greatest determinant for long-term investor performance. And everybody is, uh, using your Catholic analogy, everybody's a saint. I don't know if you've noticed. Yes. No one makes no. behavioral mistakes ever. That happens to people that uh, we don't know or care about. It never happens to us. So That's what I love being a financial good. planner. That was my favorite part, was getting to see the fact that all the geniuses out there, yeah, we're all making the same mistakes. Like everybody is making the same mistakes. You think that person who's incredibly smart isn't making mistakes in their portfolio? I got to see inside their portfolio. They're yeah. ma they're making some mistakes. We all, we, which which by the way is the fun of the show because I think that sharing mistakes is way more interesting than all of us. You know, we call up Dave in Tennessee. He's perfect with his money, and so we he we is get, we get to get yelled He's at. Magical. Yes. Uh, nothing. The only thing he's imperfect about is being a Tennessee fan. <laughs> nothing against Dave in Tennessee. Our uh, second headline comes to us from Investment News. You see, this one's written by Bruce Kelly, mid-sized broker-dealer in Atlanta to shut down. Bruce writes, after getting whacked with a $10 million trading loss over the summer, hashtag oops, I think they should have put there. 
IFS Securities will shut its doors. According to his broker check report uh, last Monday, IFS Securities changes status with the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, Inc., from active or open for business to, quote, termination requested, meaning it's filed a formal notice that it's closing its operations with FINRA. A call to the firm's main office in Atlanta could not be completed because the phone was out of service. A spokesperson for the broker-dealer, Jillian Kaiser, did not return calls on Friday to comment. It was a year of woe for IFS Securities, which at one time had 160 registered reps and advisors. And this next line, this next paragraph here, kids, is why we don't play market timing games. Because supposedly these people are experts, and this is what happened. In August, it was reported the firm's head municipal securities trader, Keith Wakefield, made unauthorized trades and shorted treasury bonds, resulting in a $10 million loss. He was then fired and barbed from the securities industry, but IFS didn't have sufficient funds to settle the bond trades, according to reports. It's easy to spend. You and I were just talking about this. I was dealing with a property management issue on... uh, one of my rental properties and uh, I walk in, it's under construction. It's in the North and the freaking upstairs windows wide open. And I just look at the guy. I look back at the window. I look at the guy. I look back at the window and I'm like, man, it's easy to spend other people's money, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So this guy's like, yeah, yeah, short this 10 mil. Let's do it, baby. I'm either a hero or a goat. Don't care. Not my money. Oh, took down a company. Nice job. Guy shorts treasuries, thinks that treasury prices are going to fall. So he had a big bet that interest rates were going up and the Fed did a oopsie. Figures out the greatest way to disappoint the number of people, greatest number of people. Yeah. Don't play that game. Or if you're going to do it, go strong like this guy. Do you think that guy, even when he made that trade, was like just a sweaty mess? Like he's, <laughs> like he's, like he's pressing the button. And he's just perspiring nonstop. Go big or go home. Yeah. Do you think anybody suspected anything? Heck no. You know why? Because he was using Native. Native makes safe, simple, effective products that people use in the bathroom or when they're trying to make unapproved trades in the treasury market every day with trusted ingredients and trusted performance. Even if they can't trust you, they can trust Native. (laughs) (laughs) At least you'll smell good. Native can hang with you, your workout, your busy mom life, or 16-hour day, or that unauthorized trade you don't want the boss to know about. We're shorting the thing that usually goes one way. Native has fewer, simpler ingredients, so you know everything that's in the deodorant. It's also safe and effective. Native comes in a wide variety of enticing scents for men and women. So when you're explaining to the boss why that trade went south, he'll say, is that eucalyptus? Plus, they release new limited edition seasonal scents throughout the year. Classic scents spice. include, yeah, coke. is that coconut and vanilla? Mm, that's your most popular one. Oh, that trade smelled like lavender and rose, cucumber and mint, or eucalyptus and mint. That's the one I've got. Native offers free returns and exchanges in the USA. Subscribe and save 17%. Save $2 a stick. Have Native conveniently delivered your door every one, two, three, or four months. Get 20% off your first purchase by visiting nativedeodorant.com and her promo code SB during checkout. I bet that's the first thing he did. He presses the button on that trade and goes, man, I got to get some native deodorant, cover this stuff up. You think he was like, uh, like in the big short, like Christian Bale, just sitting in there with like, put his headphones on and just, just reclined in his seat while the guy was yelling at him. 
like Michael Burry. And he's like, doctor. Michael doctor. Burry. <laughs> yes. Yes, I do. Uh, Except he didn't make $3 billion. He no, lost 10 million. that's 20% off your first purchase by going to nativedeodorant.com, enter promo code SB at checkout. I think that's the takeaway. Don't let him see you sweat when you place the trade that's going to sink the firm. Don't let him see you sweat. But our big takeaway, I think, financial headwinds. Yeah, those are some good ones. But a better one is don't be your own headwind. Chris Varellis is upstairs talking to mom. He has been responsible, OG, for brokering some of the biggest mergers and acquisitions in finance. He's listed among the top 100 deal makers by the New York Times, named top technology rainmaker by Dealmakers Monthly. This guy is so interesting. He has this unique place in history where from the time he started his career to now, he has seemed to switch industries at a pace that just keep pace with some of the biggest, most dangerous things that have happened in personal finance. He's going to tell a story from early in his career today, hopefully. He started off in banking. He moved to Wall Street. He was city's head of technology, media, and telecommunications through all kinds of booms and busts. He led city's national investment bank, the regional offices, their culture committee. In 2008, he went and co-founded Riverwood Capital, a premier private equity firm in Silicon Valley. You know what he's doing when he's not investing in private equity, OG? He's hanging out with us right here. Let's say hi to Chris Varellis and talk about how money became dangerous. And coming down the stairs... Man, I, I got to say, I absolutely love this book. Chris Ferellis, who wrote the How Money Became Dangerous, hanging out in the basement. How are you, man? Thanks for having me. This is this is nicer than I expected. It's still not nice, but it's nicer than I expected. Why is that everybody's first impression? Like, I expected it to be horrible. We're a big name show, Chris. Yeah, but, you know, what makes you so authentic is you keep it real. So I was <laughs> expecting, like, the real basement where you walk down and, and there you are. Yes, and we have we do have the board games and we do have the shag yeah, carpet, yeah. so we we check all those boxes. Let's talk about you though and keeping it real. In second grade, I think it was, you said, Chris, that your money journey began. Yeah, we have this banker walking in with the suit and the shiny shoes and starts to teach us about the world of money. He said basically you should save and when you save you'll learn interest and please bring in a dime every week. And I'll deposit it for you. So we started doing the math. We're like, oh, 30 weeks, that's $3. If I do this for three more grades, that's $9. And then I'll earn interest. And remember, this is, this is you know, back when $3 meant something. So, you know, we were all excited. And, we, you know, that was our first lesson in money, that money could earn money. So Who's, I brought my dime in every week. I, I was going to ask you, and this isn't in the book, whose idea do you think that was? Do you think that was just a bank promotion thing with your school? Or was it your teacher trying to teach you about money? Because this is, this is what, the early 70s maybe? Pretty much, yeah. Early, early 70s, right. Absolutely. I, you know, it's a good question. I actually, you know, I don't want to be cynical, 
But you'd like to think of it as like, okay, we want you to bank with Springfield Savings and Loan once you have some real money. This is in Springfield, Massachusetts. But I actually think it was a time where there was a civic duty or responsibility to teach you about money. And I actually don't think it was as simple as let's get them early before they really have a real bank account. And what's interesting about today is I don't really see that happening. I don't, you know, it's, it's great that you have your show. I mean, where does, where do you learn about finance? Where does the financial literacy come from? It's the most important thing in our lives that we spend pretty much no time learning about. Well, and the difficult piece of that is studies show that a lot of the financial literacy programs out there don't work, which makes it even tougher. I mean, there's even a more fundamental question, which is how do we teach it? But for you, second grade, like you can already see the wheels turning. Like you're like, I put my money away. Like it was a simpler time. I put my money away. I get awarded some interest. I come back and get it later and everybody wins. Yeah. It seemed almost hard to believe. I mean, Albert Einstein said compound interest is the most powerful force in the universe, right? So for me, it was already clicking a bit and I'm like, wow, this, this is great. And the fact that money could work for me. So I diligently, I brought my dime in every week put it in the savings account. It earned its little bit of interest. The amount really didn't matter. It was more that, you know, that happened. I continue to do that throughout my days, all through high school. You know, every odd job that I had, I would contribute to the savings. You talk about this in the book. You talk about how generally not just that was easier. Finance, even at that time, Chris, for adults was easier. You talk about not everybody got a mortgage, when you did have a mortgage, uh, people would have, you know, like the Waltons, they'd have their, they'd have their mortgage burning party. I still remember that episode. Times are just way simpler for money back then. Yeah, I said there's back then there were only two numbers that mattered, and they were both years: the year you paid off your mortgage and the year you qualified for your pension. Those are the two numbers you needed to know, and you paid that mortgage off. Everything else about finance was, you know, was just not something you needed to worry about. You didn't need to worry about grease blowing up or the repurchase rate spiking or banks not providing liquidity to the mortgage market or whatever was needed. It was a much different time. Then uh, your first look at how mortgage or about how the whole industry was getting a little more complicated, I believe you said was in high school when your dad came home and was stricken because he was going to have to let some people go. Yeah, you know, it, it's, it's given the industry I'm now I'm in now in. I spent 20 years on Wall Street and then in private equity. It's it's almost ironic that I look back at my first moment. My dad was actually the executive of a leverage buyout. He would come home. Interest rates started to spike in the 80s. If you remember, they went to these like astronomical numbers, and all of a sudden, the debt or the leverage that was used to basically finance the company was running skyrocketed, which put amazing pressure on his cost structure, as you can imagine. So he had to do a number of cost reduction exercises, which include laying people off. It really bothered him. I could see it was very upsetting. And as a result, it was upsetting to me as a, you know, as a high schooler kid, really a teenager. I'm like, whoa, what's going to happen to these people? Why do you have to lay them off? Like, is there anything else we can do? Why did this happen? How do high interest rates, which at that point I really liked because I'm like, ooh, the higher the interest rate, the more I'm, wor- I'm earning on my dimes. All of a sudden that high interest rate is a bad thing, right? And like <laughs> people are losing their jobs. And I'm like, wait, wait, I thought high interest rates were good. Now they're bad. And it was definitely upsetting for our family. I can imagine the world starting to get complicated Did you go to withdraw your money before or after you went to work at Disneyland? Yeah. So what I did was I I had amassed $200 
And I, um, when we moved to California for this buyout, I, I put it I, for my dad's job. I put um, the money in the local bank there. And then I went off to college and I was working at Disneyland and I had a separate Disneyland savings account. They had a Disneyland credit union. So I put my money there. So I, I sort of left that $200 in the bank account thinking like, I'll just let it sit there and just, you know, it's just working for me and it's earning money. And then when I graduated, I said, I got a job at Bank of America. And I said, now that I work for Bank of America, I got to be loyal to my new employer. So I'm going to take that $200 as well as my business. But that $200, I'm going to take it out. I'm going to put it in the Bank of America. And I was thinking, oh, how much? I wonder how much interest I earned over that four years, right? It's been accumulating. And I walk into the bank and they say, I go to the thing. I'd like to close out my account and withdraw my money. They look and they say, well, that, that account's been closed. You have a zero balance. I was like, how can that be? When I read this, by the way, when I read this, I thought somebody had seriously stolen your money. Like that, that was the first thing I thought. I'm like, why would somebody steal this two kids? 200. I wondered if that <laughs> banker who came to your school had been ripping off all these dimes all those years. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. But as you know, the answer was they had instituted a uh, service charge, a uh, service fee, a monthly service fee. And over the years, um, they had zeroed it out and all my money was gone. And even though in my later career, I've lost, tens, hundreds of millions of dollars at points, you know, not my money, but, you know, in terms of as an investor, that $200 loss was easily the most devastating loss to me because I, you know, you think about all the effort, time and energy and work, you know, these are my first earnings to be zeroed out. I think it's somewhat indicative of the modern world where, you can work so hard, you know, your 401k, your life savings, and then, you know, something happens in the world or there's some exogenous, some macroeconomic event that basically wipes out your savings. Or let's say you have most of your, your life, you know, your pension wrapped up in the stock of the company you work for and then something happens. I mean, so it's an analogous story to, I think, a lot, a lot of what happens in the modern world. Yeah. Well, welcome to the world of uh, bank fees, too. <laughs> Right, exactly that too. <laughs> Which is I ended up working for a bank, and you know, I have to say, at first I'm like, oh, these bank fees are terrible. How can they? And then you work for a bank, and you're like, all right, they start telling you why those fees are necessary, and you know, they do provide a service. There is a cost, and then there's a question of who do you charge and why. So, you know, I did get to see the other side of that argument, but that doesn't diminish the pain of of losing your life savings. We're, we're going to have you back to talk about that one. Cause that's a whole different, that is like, right. a, I think we could do that for 25 minutes. Talk about the other side of bank fees. And I don't want to dwell on this, but I did think it was funny that, uh, you got a job at Disneyland in college as a hostess because with the name of Chris, they thought you were a female. Yeah, no, I was actually working at Anaheim stadium selling peanuts and the baseball players went on strike People would always say like, oh, you look like someone that could work at Disneyland, which I never was really sure was a compliment or not. (laughs) So uh, I go down late in the season and I go, I need a job. And I was worried because it was like way past the hiring season. I said, I'll take any job, whatever you have. And then I get a notice in the mail saying, we're excited to give you an offer and we want to make you a hostess in New Orleans Square. And, And I thought the hostess thing was a little was a little off. I said, you know, I need a job. If they want to call me a hostess, I don't really care, right? So I show up first day and I go to my, you know, my new boss. I'm reporting to a New Orleans Square, you know, the Cafe Orleans Blue Bayou. And I'm like, I'm Chris Varellis here my first day. And he looks at me and he goes, what? 
because you're Chris Farrell. I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, can I see your ID? And I was like, well, this is very strange. Yeah, I'm 17 years old. Too. I'm a little, <laughs> little nervous. I'm like, you know, well, here's my ID. And he goes, hmm, this is strange. Next thing you know, I'm doing what hostesses do, you know, seating people in restaurants, cashiering. And I noticed I'm the only guy. There's like 80 women on the hostess board and me, right? And it wasn't actually till the end of the summer where, I, you know, where they said, oh, you know, you want to do this next year? And I'm like, of course I want to do this next year. Right? Yeah, like, duh. I'm getting, paid to, I'm getting paid to hang out with women hired for their looks and charm. Don't ask me how I got the job, right? But, you know, 80 women over the summer, of course I want. And then they asked me, I said, why was I the first male hostess in the history of Disneyland? And they're like, oh, we mistook you for a girl. There was a clerical error because of your name. That's, I thought it was some like groundbreaking, yeah. some groundbreaking moment. Right. And- it turns out it's just somebody in the back room messed up. Uh, and I also am sure that Disney, knowing Disney, they probably changed those hiring practices. So they might not be, might not be hiring people based on gender and looks and that type of stuff anymore. Yeah, you were casting for a part at Disney, right? Sure. So you weren't hiring. And so there were practices that I think today would be called sexist, racist, even. And, you know, of course, the company has evolved. But back at the time, you were, it was completely okay to assign people based on gender and race to various parts of the park. And by the way, working at that restaurant, not at all bad either. That's always my favorite restaurant when I make it to Southern California. Like if you can eat at the, the what's it called? The Blue Bayou? Blue Bayou, Club yes. 33, Cafe oh. Rooms, yeah. And I will have to say, the cleanest kitchen I've ever seen in my entire life. Uh-oh. And so, you know, sometimes when you see the, the back, it's not as pleasant. But Disney, they were not going to allow any chance for um, you know, food poison, anything like that. So, yeah, it, was, it had to be the cleanest place I've seen. You go to work for Bank of America. You are working, you're working with people in the in the jewelry industry and in the diamond industry tell me well you know what let's talk about a couple of characters we'll start off with a guy named Barry who you talk right. about in the book cuz i think as you describe Barry to us people will get a feeling for that industry tell us a little bit about Barry yeah Barry was on first impression extremely scary i always say you know pulp fiction came along later but when i saw the john travolta character in pulp fiction i was like that's barry right it's like really good looking, really intense, really passionate. And you walk into his office and he's got the phone like he's a trader. He's got post-it notes everywhere. He's like doing diamond deals. Like he's a wholesaler. So he's, you know, got one person on this line doing a deal with somebody else and it's frenetic and he's very intense and he's very intimidating, you know, and it's known that he's got basically an arsenal there to protect himself. And, you know, every other word is the F word and, for me, with my Disneyland sensibilities, I'm like, whoa, I'd never heard the F word <laughs> right. in, a, in a business situa- setting before. So I was taken aback and everybody had warned me like, Barry's going to eat you alive. And even when I showed up and he, he asked me like, oh, where'd you work? And, you know, I had the answer truth. I said, Disneyland. And he's like, Disney effing land. He's like, are you, I got Mickey Mouse as my loan officer. And he's making me feel like I'm just this worthless, you know, who is this? worthless kid that's walked into my office thinking he's going to be my loan officer. And these guys, they can borrow quite a bit of money to fund their inventory. Well, and, and, and your job, when you first go in, you realize that he's never signed a, an actual loan agreement. You guys have been loaning him money year after year and he's never signed anything. And you're trying to get him to sign some paperwork to make it official. Yeah, so the, the jewelry industry is a, the industry of trust. You know, character is everything. And so the notion that you would actually question them was un, 
was unheard of. And so for years, decades, whatever it was, we had been loaning money to the jewelry industry with no documentation because it was an industry based on trust. And Barry was the head. He was like the he was head of the Diamond Club in L.A. So he was the top dog in the industry. But there had been an issue just the year previously. One of the reasons I was assigned there, there had been a staged robbery and a lot of losses. So the the bank was like, we got to come to the modern age. We need these guys to sign the documents and actually have written proof that there's actually documentation for the loans. And so my first assignment was to walk into Barry's office and say, sir, we need you to sign these documents, which was tantamount to me to telling him, we don't trust you, right? Yeah. And that's how he read that. And that's basically how he responded. He's like, get the F out of here and don't come back. And either you trust me or, or you don't. And it was a humbling experience, to say the least, to how, go in. And, how long did it take you to actually get those documents signed by him or get some documents signed by him? It took a long time because over time, you know, we became friends. It turns out that, you know, of course, the rough exterior hides this generous giving, hugely trusting person. I mean, he actually, his trust thing was legit. I mean, he is actually one of the most trustworthy people I've ever met in my life. And it was also a lesson to me that the rough exterior, just because they say the F4 doesn't mean you can't trust someone. So what happened at the end of the day, he ended up signing the documents, but he did it for me, right? He did it for, you know, okay, well, if this will make you look good with the bosses, then sure, I'll sign Right. But I'm not signing it because I'm acknowledging that this is necessary. It's funny, Chris, you talk about how character you have the five C's loaning people money. And one of those is character. He ended up being such a great person in your life that you could go to him to ask about other people's character. It sounded to me like he was your number one go to when you were thinking about loaning money to anybody else. Yeah, if I was loaning anyone in the diamond industry, you know, I actually won an award for no loan losses in the diamond industry, which is unheard of for an extended period of time. My secret, I called him my diamond consigliere. I just <laughs> called up Barry and I said, Barry, should I loan money to this guy or not? And if he said, oh, yeah, yeah, you can trust him. You know, he'll he'll sell his daughter, literally like he'll sell his daughter to pay you back if he has to, right? Wow. Which, you know, to me, it's like that was shocking. Yeah, right. But, but, but I knew like, okay, this guy or don't trust that guy. And it was a small, you know, the internet's changed and everything. But back then it was a family business where everybody knew each other. You knew who was honest and you knew who wasn't. And it was as simple as me making a phone call and saying, Barry, thumbs up, thumbs down. And if he said thumbs up, I had no worries. If he said thumbs down, I knew to, you know, to go elsewhere. Well, and at the same time, you introduced us to another character, a guy named Nazareth. And Nazareth, when you first meet him, he's not a big player yet, but he seems to be coming into his own. Like he seems like another guy who just took you into his family, right? Like a really, really super guy. Tell me about Nazareth. Yeah, he was the opposite of Barry. Affable, fun-loving, self-deprecating. You know, back then he used to call everyone babe, like Chris Babe, whatever, but he got it backwards. You know, he'd call me baby Chris and <laughs> how's it going? And, you know, he was a Armenian from Lebanon and he came to the U.S. And, you know, the Armenians were drawn to certain industries, just as all nationalities tend to congregate. My Greek ancestors tend to own pizza places and diners <laughs> and the like. So, you know, I'm okay with the generalizations, but, you know, the Armenians were very prominent in the gold industry. So he went into the gold industry and, you know, I was just drawn to him. Yeah, I'd ha- he'd have me over to his house for dinner and, you know, I was always laughing. We'd go on lunches and you're just somebody you're just rooting for, him, right? You're just like, okay, yeah, I really want this guy to succeed because he was so energetic and 
friendly and funny and he was always asking me like oh you know how is the boogie action which is his term for sex and he goes oh any boogie action this weekend and <laughs> how was it and it's just it's just fun well that's what as you're talking about that i remember a story that you tell you accidentally you messed up his loan paperwork which he got this automatically generated letter then that said all the money he owed was owed right now and he knew for a guy that was running as big a business as he did, you describe him as really not knowing surprisingly little about how everything worked. And he came in, seemed very pale and nervous. And I'm going to quote you from the book. Nazareth says, this weekend I was having boogie action with Rosa. That's his spouse. But I'm not thinking, oh, this is great boogie action. Instead, I'm thinking, how am I going to pay baby Chris the money I owe him? Because I don't have it. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, it was a working line of credit to pay inventory, and it gets renewed every year. But I had not, even though I'd gotten approval, I, I, I had not actually submitted the paperwork. So it, he got a notice saying it's pay and doable. And so all of us do right then. And so all of a sudden, he, I know it was 100 for him. It was not something that he could just go into the till or the whatever and pay. And so, yeah, he came into me just completely pale like i'd never seen him like that he was clearly nervous and scared and and i said baby naz I, he called me baby chris i called him baby i go baby naz don't worry take a whole nother year i didn't want to admit i made a mistake right so i said <laughs> you know i'll tell you what i'm gonna do take a whole nother year i don't want to ruin your bookie action so you know <laughs> i'm gonna do, do you th- i'm gonna do you a salad i'm gonna let it go another year <laughs> yeah exactly take another year <laughs> by the way you make throughout Throughout uh, the book, you pull back and you talk about some of the bigger stuff going on at the time. This was the time of the end of some of the local sheets that you use for loan analysis. And now we're turning the corner into a time where there's spreadsheets and now computers. And this, this you point out, is really, even though it seemed like a little thing at the time, it seems to me like as I'm reading this, seems to me to be the beginning of some of the decision-making being taken out of your hands and now being made by more and more complex formulas about how they're going to loan people money. Yeah, yeah. When I showed up, you know, the computer spreadsheet didn't exist. So we did everything by hand on this big yellow spreadsheet. And the great thing about that, and this, this I think, was the real starting point of how money has become dangerous and complex. Since you did it by hand with pencil and eraser, you spend a lot of time thinking about, okay, what's the most likely thing that's going to happen? And I'm going to model that. You didn't want to have to do it more than once. And so you thought, you put all the thought into it up front, and then you would like model the company, what you know, its historical performance, what you think was going to happen, and you put in the most likely projections. And then the spreadsheet comes along, and all of a sudden it's like, wow, this is a new whiz-bang fancy tool. I can just input everything. You don't even have to think. You just input all the historical numbers, and then you put in a scenario, and you say, oh, that looks good, or that doesn't. And all of a sudden, the two things happen. One, you go from asking what is most likely to what is possible. Where can I push the envelope? And then the second thing that happens is you start to realize that you know, the analysis can be done via this fancy computer model later on algorithms that could assess the credit worthiness of people. So it became all of a sudden less about how much do you know the person and their integrity and became more about what do the numbers tell you? And that allowed you 
that allowed the whole process then to be taken out of the micro relying on individuals to know people to sort of more of a regional credit where you have people looking at spreadsheets as opposed to looking into the eyes of people. Yeah, which which I, th- I don't, to some degree I think is a little bit of a sad time, but of course you can see the risk reward analysis for a bank. Absolutely. Yeah. The um, let's go back to let's go back to NAS because for a guy that doesn't understand uh, how banking works at all, he seems to be increasingly more and more of a shooter. And you talk about your days. Are you and your your wife just married or? Oh no no no! I'm 22 straight out of college. I'm 13 years away from marriage. I mean, I'm, <laughs> this is my first real job because we've always said, when we worked at Disneyland, we say, what's your real job going to be? Cause we all knew Disneyland wasn't a, you know, a real sure, job. Right, right. Insult any Disney employees on the podcast, but it's my first job and I'm, I'm learning literally on the job and exposed to, you know, if you've been to downtown LA and the jewelry industry, you know, all of the illicit activity really happens within a quarter mile of that place, right? So that's where, you know, that's where the drug deals happen. That's where the fencing happens. That's where Skid Row is. It's about as far away from Disneyland in the United States of America anyway, as you can possibly get. And so I was thrown from one world and, you know, into another. Yeah. But he ends up, you tell him that you're headed to Las Vegas and he says he can help you get a room and you're like, no, 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 I don't need help getting a room. But he's like, just tell him I sent you go to what the Monte Carlo, you show up at the Monte Carlo. They tell you, you can't have a room. The woman that you're with says, well, tell him about Naz. And you finally do. You don't want to do it, Chris, but you do it. You finally tell them about Naz. And I just can't imagine like saying, Hey, this dude sent me that I kind of know. And I loan money to sometimes. Exactly. I mean, I just thought they would start looking at me like laughing, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, one, I I was like, okay, I want to do this on my own regardless. But when there's no rooms available, you know, Nazareth said, tell them Nazareth sent you. And it sounded so ridiculous, like to go up to the front desk and say, Nazareth sent me, right? It sounded like some bad B-movie scene. <laughs> and so, But it just happened to be when Las Vegas was taking off and it was Jerry Lewis Telethon Weekend and there wasn't a room anywhere. And so at that point, you're like, okay. I'll deal with the humiliation of them laughing in my face over having to like drive home or, you know, out of town or whatever. And at that point, like, okay, worst case scenario, we'll have a funny story to tell when we said Nazareth sent me and they just looked back at us and said, whatever, and shushed us away. So we went back and we said, Nazareth sent me. And the woman literally perks up and says, oh, just a moment and goes into the back and I don't want to say it was the manager. It felt like the manager of the hotel to me, but you know who knows what his level was. And he comes to me and says, oh, Mr. Varelis, we've been expecting you. you know, it was actually Caesar's Palace. Welcome to Caesar's Palace, oh. which was the hotel. Yeah, right, the right, time, right, right. And, you know, and then he takes me up to the penthouse suite and you know, welcomes me as a guest of the hotel. And then asks me if a $50,000 line in credit would be sufficient. And I said, that's okay. I went to the ATM machine this morning (laughs) and he just laughs like I'm being funny and says, okay, let us know. And they followed us around for the rest of the weekend, expecting us to be big gamblers because it turned out Nazareth was their number one gambler, like their number one whale, as they call it. So they were expecting me to also be a big gambler as well. We, of course, had to go across the street to the Aladdin because we didn't want them see us at the nickel slots and you know, the $2 blackjack table because <laughs> that, that was the best we could do. 
I can imagine. And the funny thing is at the end of that, because of the rules of Bank of America, of course, you couldn't take the free room. So you, yep. you, you told them you had to pay for it and they had a hell of a time trying to figure out what the price was going to be. And it ended up being some ridiculously low, $130 a night, I think you said. Right, right. Yeah. And, you know, the irony of it all, which I think is the interesting finance side of the story is I actually didn't have a credit card. I applied for a Bank of America credit card and was not approved, even though I was an employee of the firm. So I actually had to pay cash for it, which I was prepared and did have on me. And, you know, it's, it's interesting later on when you see how easily credit cards were given out that someone who is even an employee of the firm wasn't approved. I ended up actually that I told that story to the managers that actually did get me a B of A credit card. But I think it's an interesting statement of the times in terms of the prudence of the credit practice back then versus what it became later. Yeah. I thought the same because as I was reading that, I'm thinking about how my kids in just out of college. And of course, being a dad in finance, I was helping them try to build their credit ahead of time. But my kids are 25 and already has, I think my daughter has two and my son has two and there's zero balance, but they are building credit. You're, you're working for the bank and you can't get a credit card. Whole different, yeah, yeah. whole different world. Did Barry know Naz? Did you ever ask Barry when you were asking about different people about Nazareth? Yeah, you know, different industry, right? The gold industry was predominantly Jewish and the, sorry, the diamond industry was predominantly Jewish and the gold industry was predominantly Armenian and they didn't really cross. They were two different worlds, even though they were in the same buildings and they walked the same streets and they were almost like Mars and Venus, right? They didn't really interact with us. So Barry wasn't helpful when it came to diamond, sorry, to gold dealers. This is a much longer story, but then at uh, a point later on, a DEA agent walks into your office and you have to explain to him your dealings with NAS. I'm sure the whole time, Chris, you had to be thinking that this is a huge mistake. Yeah, you know, he started depositing large amounts of cash. And remember, this is before money laundering and those types of things. And he said he was becoming a gold wholesaler, which was a high cash, low margin business. One of my other customers, also an Armenian gold dealer, basically tipped off the feds through the stories covered, but through a story. And then, yeah, I was basically, you know, summoned to actually meet with the, I met with the customer and the DA agent was in the room and I was getting lots of questions about Nazareth. What was his business? Why was he doing what he was doing? Why was he bringing cash? All of that. He was such a nice guy and so friendly to me that I never questioned his integrity or his business. I defended him, right? I was like, oh, now he's a good guy. He, he's a hard worker, which he was. You know, he's in the gold business. So, you know, I, of course, I dutifully answered all the questions as a good citizen and really gave my honest, true perspective on his character and what I thought of him. And you were, by the way, friends enough with him then. You were meeting with him. I don't know if it was a day or two or whenever later. You told him, you said, hey, I had to answer these questions for a DEA agent. How did he take that? Yeah, one of the most stunning moments of my life, definitely up to that point. And I thought, okay, this is the type of thing where if someone's a friend of yours and, you know, if the client, customer, you think you should tell them that. So, you know, in one of my visits, I loved walking, you know, all, everything was in walking distance. So I would walk the street every day visiting various clients and customers. That's how I became friends with Bear that he signed the documents. And so in one of my visits to Nazareth, 
casual visits, I go, you know, Nazareth, I don't think it's a big deal, but I think I should let you know I got a call and was questioned in front of a DE agent. And at that moment, his whole demeanor changed. He turned and he had a serious, intense look that I had never seen on his face before. It was completely out of character to anything I had witnessed. And I knew at that moment, even as, I don't know, I hate to use the word gullible because you want to call yourself gullible. But, you know, I was young. I was inexperienced. I, you know, I had not yet seen much of the world. But I knew in that moment there was something amiss. And he had been laundering money and I just didn't want to believe it. But in that moment, there was no doubt that that was the case. And not only had he been laundering money, if you don't mind, I'll if you do the honors, tell everybody just exactly how much money and, uh, well, what he was involved with. Because this, this amazed me. The whole operation was measured north of a billion, and he was laundering money for Pablo Escobar cartel, which at the time was, you know, the cartel. And he was actually the number one operation. It was called, actually called La Mina meaning the mine by the Escobar cartel because it was literally their number one source of laundering money back to Colombia. And that set off a whole investigation, the largest DEA investigation ever. When they did arrest him, it was the longest actual trial in the history of the L.A. federal court system. He's now serving, at the time, it was the longest sentenced ever issued in the history of the U.S. penal system. I think it was 500 and something years he was sentenced to prison. You you write, as you're leaving the jewelry industry and you're actually headed uh, away from Bank of America to Wharton, you write, uh, so I left the jewelry and trucking industries behind for Wharton and Wall Street, not foreseeing that I was throwing myself headlong into a world in which I would meet many Nazareths, a world of handshakes and cross-purposes, charm and deceit, ambition and rationalized immoral behavior. Turns out Nazareth was a really good liar, Chris. And it sounds like you met a lot of liars. Yeah. You know, lying has many dimensions to it, right? I think, you know, in Nazareth's case, I would say he was just amoral and he was presented with, I think to him, which seemed like a very logical and straightforward proposition, take a dollar, deposit it in the bank, keep I think it was as much as 40 cents. I mean, it was like these people were very heavily rewarded. Keep 40 cents for yourself and then wire the rest to this number. And he's thinking, you know, what am I doing wrong, really? I'm just, I'm just depositing money into a bank and then wiring it somewhere else. Like, I'm not actually selling the drugs or using the drugs or whatever. And I think when you move to any institution or any industry, there's lots of scenarios like that where you're like, okay, I'm not actually the one that's, committing the act, even though I'm complicit or I'm facilitating it, where you're easily rationalizing away behavior that later on, I think, is obviously untoward. So I think if you actually talk to those people and they wouldn't say they were lying, they would just say they were doing something that, you know, if you look at the specific act itself, it really wasn't breaking the law or doing anything inappropriate. The book I'm is not putting up a defense. I'm yeah, just, sure. I'm just trying to explain the behaviors that I saw 
the Nazareth throughout the world. Well, I even saw it, I mean, just in retail financial planning, financial planners who yes. would do yeah. things that I would look at and go, huh? And they go, well, here's the reason why. And they give you 50 reasons why it was okay in this specific case to really, in my mind, screw somebody over. I don't know if it's a defense mechanism or the fact that there's big sums of money involved and that kind of changes yeah. people a little bit rationalization, but that's another show. We get you, a psychologist, and me, and we, yep. <laughs> we, we talk about that. The book is called How Money Became Dangerous, The Inside Story of Our Turbulent Relationship with Modern Finance. Chris not only goes on to Wharton, just to tell you, this was the first story of a bajillion stories in this book about Wharton, about Wall Street, about going on road shows. I mean, there's so many, but buying your first stock, I thought was was amazing and going back and forth between the world becoming more difficult to track your money and your personal stories. I really like how those intertwined. Where do we get it? I'm sure this is available everywhere, correct? Everywhere. Independent bookstores, Amazon, the usual places. That's so awesome. Thanks for taking some time out of your busy day to talk about uh, the early days and about about inadvertently helping people launder money, Chris. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, thanks. Thanks for having me in the basement. It's been a real pleasure. And, you know, I've been eyeing which board game to play. You know, I'm, I'm a big fan, so we'll have to uh, play something here now. Hey there, trivia fans. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and welcome to the most thrilling part of this adventure, while Chris and Joe were wrapping up, I knew I had to find some trivia about all the dangers lurking around every corner. Throughout my deep, highly researched study involving obscure places you probably never heard of, like Wikipedia or Google, I found some horrifyingly dangerous activities, like texting and walking or mixing up reds and whites and something about orange juice. I, I don't know, it was OJ this and OJ that and something about... It fitting or not fitting, and I'll tell you the truth, it all led to a dead end. But I did see a few links about OG heading to the NFL and being a complete hockey nut. I jumped down that dangerous rabbit hole. So let's get this NFL-related trivia done, shall we? Here's your question. What NFL team was actually the first to end a season undefeated? I'll have your answer right after this. It's funny how often we use Skillshare. They became a sponsor of the show back in January. And since then, we've taken so many different classes. You may remember that I took one on photography. We've taken several on design. We took one on uh, Facebook ads. Also just took one on communication. Just a few of the many uses we've had here in the basement with Skillshare. And if you're new to the show, well, let me explain what Skillshare is. It's an online learning community, and there's thousands of amazing classes which cover dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography, like I did, creative writing, been there, done that, design, I did that one, productivity, and more. There's tons of financial planning classes at Skillshare. So if you're looking to dive in deeper on some of these topics, Skillshare is a great place to start. Whether you're returning to a long-time passion project, challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes for you. I think coming up next, for me personally on Skillshare, I'm fascinated by this idea of clean, elegant design. 
And I also like retro design, which maybe is why I like Brad Lark's t-shirts for us so much. So I think that's where I'm headed next. You can join the millions of students like us here in the basement already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for our stackers. You'll get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right. Skillshare is offering Stacky Benjamin's listeners two months unlimited access to thousands of classes for free to sign up. All you have to do is go to Skillshare.com slash SP. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash SP to start your two months now. Skillshare.com slash SP. Welcome back, fans of mystery. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and this is the most dangerous part of this show, my trivia. What's dangerous, do you ask? Uh, th- th- this trivia is dangerous. I answer, as dangerous as trying to shave in the shower, stopping to tie your shoe on a busy sidewalk, asking for extra salt after trying some of Joe's mom's food, which, by the way, is you know, mostly delicious, I promise, uh, especially if she's listening. But uh, you know what you wouldn't expect? Not even for a second. Today's dangerous trivia answer. Check this out. Before the break, I asked you this hockey-themed trivia question. What NFL team was actually the first team to end a season undefeated? The answer? If you said the Miami Dolphins 1972 season, you'd be correct. Wait a minute. Dolphins are a baseball team, aren't they? How'd they go undefeated? 160... Seven games. Wow. Well, as with all teams, they've also had their fair share of bad seasons, which goes to show you when life goes sour, fire your head coach and try again next year. That's what Joe's Lions always do. See ya. I don't even want to know how he got from dangerous to the Dolphins. And I also don't know about how big a sports fan he is, but why does he have to bring it around to my lions? Why? That's They're the terrible. Only question I have. Terrible. What are you talking about? Well, they won two games this year. Three, maybe. Yes. But the stats around like how well the lines have done in the face of adversity, they're not as bad a team as the record looks. Sure. They lose every game, <laughs> but, but they look good doing it. Yes. But next year, Next year's a new year. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends at Haven Life Insurance Agency put what you value first. How about uh, uh, helping Pablo Escobar embezzle money? I am not going to say that on a recording. <laughs> on a rec- <laughs> yeah. Ever. Or you no, can. Or even not, not on a recording. You yeah. just won't say that. Doesn't matter yeah. if the recording's running or not. I don't, think, I, don't think, I don't think it's possible anymore. Isn't he in jail? How horrifying. Dead. What, how fine, how how horrifying would that be? Saw and go. Oops, oops. It's, it's just like the uh, the market timing Muni deal, right? Just go big or go home. If you're gonna embezzle money, you better embezzle for like the biggest thing you can get. Like, don't embezzle money from your church. Do you make a couple hundred grand doing that? No, 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 no. Do it for like a drug lord, where you make like forty five million a month. Meh, you get arrested eventually, but it's my two cents on it. There it is. <laughs> You're looking at me like, is he kind of serious? Is he, it's like, oh, he's thought through this. He's, he's got the whole plan. So here's what we do. Uh, it's actually your loved ones in your time, which might be better than an orange jumpsuit. It's why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. Head to stackybenjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now to get a free quote. And today we're throwing out that Haven Lifeline to our friend Colton. Say hi, Colton. Ma. No, Ma. Ma, we'll play bridge later. 
Ma, I promise we'll play bridge when I'm done. I just gotta go to the basement real quick. Gosh, it smells down here. Why is everything so moldy? Oh, oh, hey, 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 quick question for you. So we've kind of been in a little bit of a cash flow crunch. We just bought a house. Things are a little tight. We have a couple of bills we have to pay. And one thing that I was debating on is I have about $5,000 in a pension plan that if you project 40 years from my retirement date, because I'm about 26, it will grow about 2.7% year over year to about $15,000 when I retire. This doesn't seem very much, and I feel like I can get more use of it by cashing it out and paying down some of my short-term debts. For my debts, I have a $10,000 car loan remaining. I also have about $8,000 in student loans. My other option was to sell my car and and downgrade, or I could do both. Additionally, I have about $3,000 in a Roth IRA that I could probably liquidate most of if I needed to. Is paying down these debts with an interest rate of about 3.8% better, or should I leave it in retirement? I'm not quite sure. A couple other things. We have about $70,000 in retirement saved up right now in our 401ks between my wife and I. We additionally have an emergency fund that has about $5,000 in it as well, as well as a little bit in savings. What would you recommend? Do I liquidate my pension plan that is no longer growing or do I keep it for retirement and just try to make some extra short-term cash in the near term? I don't think I'm going to learn anything from you, but I appreciate you taking the time. All right. Thanks. Oh, and tell Doug, uh, I started a snail racing team and if he wants to help, he can. The issue is I took the shells off and they've only become a little more sluggish. So I don't know if he'll have any ideas. All right. Thanks. Uh, Colton talks about how it stinks. The only thing that stinks are Colton's jokes. Yeah, I agree. That was so horrible, Colton. It was fantastic. It was absolutely a train wreck of a call. And uh, thanks for playing. So if he's talking about taking money out of his pension, that must mean that he doesn't work there anymore? It must mean that, which is why I think he's got a better option. Yeah. I don't know why you wouldn't see about taking that pension and rolling it over to your IRA or converting it to your Roth or to your existing retirement plan account. And then that gets the higher rate that he's talking about. Instead of having that grow to 15,000 when he hits retirement, he said he's 27. Sure. Ish. Give or take. I got lost in all the snail analogies, but if you use the rule of 72, which says you take the interest rate you think you're going to get divided into 72, that tells you how long it'll take your money to double. So if he's going to get an 8% rate of return, OG, that is nine years. So if he's 27, that means his money will double at 36, at uh, 45, 54, 63, close enough for government work. If he's talking about 62, so four times it's going to double if he gets 8%. That means he's not looking at five turning into 15. His five, the first time it doubles, turns into 10. Second time turns into 20. Third time turns into 40. Fourth time turns into 80,000. So he can either have 80,000 bucks for retirement or he can pay off his loan at three and a half percent. Well, and $5,000 doesn't seem like it makes a dent anyway. It doesn't make anything go away. Yeah. And the right? big, and the big it thing doesn't, doesn't make the payment go away on the car because 
you get it's a ten thousand dollar car. It doesn't make the student loan go away because you get eight thousand dollar student loan. So all you do is you shorten the time frame, maybe. Plus, he's gonna. But it doesn't change the cash flow at all. He's gonna have a tax bill on that money. Yep. So I'm, yeah, I'm not a not a fan. Take care of the debt other yeah. ways. If if Stop you can bridge and go get another job, if you can dude. roll it over. We don't even play bridge with mom. Why wouldn't you play bridge with mom? Yeah. Otherwise, everything else is great, right? I mean, like good retirement savings, seventy thousand cash usage. reserve. You know, going great. A little bit of debt, just just knock it out. Let's let's do that one. You know, once again, that seventy thousand at eight percent is also going to double four times without him putting any new money away. So yeah. it's one hundred and forty, two hundred and eighty, five hundred and sixty. He's already saved over a million dollars for retirement. Yep, not a bad start. Yeah, just got to do that ten more times, and then you'll be good. Awesome. <laughs> and then Susie Orban will say you're halfway there. Yep, exactly. You'll be fire ready by the time you're 72, Colton. <laughs> I'm going to fire at 72. Thanks for actually, Colton. Nice job. Very nice job on that. I, I totally agree. Everything else going well. Thanks for the question. You got a question for the show? Maybe without the uh, slug. I'm going to use that joke with my kids today and see what they see if they get it. <laughs> the slug analogy. Uh, head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. Also, here at the end of the year, you want to give yourself a great gift. Your gift and everybody else stuff. Why don't you give yourself the gift of better financial planning in 2020? OG and his team, they have the waiting list for 2020 open. And here's how you get on it. Head to stackybedjamins.com forward slash OG. Thanks to everybody for hanging out with us, especially as the end of the year here gets busy. We got some exciting things coming up, OG. One thing I'd like to talk about, usually... The Fintern takes over the last week of the year. But I don't know if you know this. This is a very special year. It's the end of the decade. So here's what's going to happen. We are going to play the last six years. We have talked about what should we have learned this year. We've got a new one coming up with a surprise special guest who's going to help us next Monday, the 23rd. But then we're going to count down to the new year with six years ago, five years ago, three years ago. Two years ago. What should we have learned? What about four years ago? We'll, we'll hit that one too. Did I miss that one? Yeah. Did I just go five, four, or five, you, three, you two? Six, five, three, two. Yes. I'll make all my elementary teachers proud with that one right there. One, two, skip a few. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Two for you, one for me. Come on. We're going to count that down and then a very special replay for New Year's Eve. So a great week of shows coming up the last week of the year. But we've got... Of the decade. Should we do this again next decade, do you think? or Last week of the day. What, podcast again? Yeah. Like come yeah. back, make it our reunion tour? After we have our big like blowout fight like the Eagles had, and then we'll have the... We'll get back together when hell freezes over. So then they had the hell freezes over. Like, ah, okay. Yeah, I wasn't unaware of that. Joe and OG has the when hell freezes over tour. It's basically like January 3rd, we'll be back. But both of our fans... Brad, no, we're up to like way more than three. Have Brad make the t-shirt. We're at least five. Yes. Anyway, gr great stuff. Thanks everybody for hanging out. We've got our favorite interviews, by the way, of the year. What were our favorites? We'll share that on Wednesday. Go Stacks and Benjamins. So what should we have learned today? First, take some advice from Chris Varellis. Just because someone looks like a great person doesn't mean they are one. You don't have to learn it the hard way like he did. Second, take some advice from our Forbes headline, Financial Headwinds 
While there are lots of them, like taxes, inflation, and fees, the biggest headwind, it's you. Don't get in your own way. But the big lesson, don't ask Joe's mom if the Miami Dolphins are a baseball team. She'll lecture you all along about the importance of understanding basketball. She put some serious Miami heat on me about the Dolphins. It was very uncomfortable. Special thanks to Chris Varellis for appearing on the show. You'll find How Money Became Dangerous wherever books are sold. And big thanks to OG for explaining to me that this whole Miami Dolphins thing was a ruse. Turns out they're a rugby team. I knew that. I knew that. This show was created by Joe Saul Cihai, produced by Richie Rutter-Reese, and engineered by the amazing Steve Stewart. Online, visit us on Twitter at at SBenjamin'sCast or on our Facebook page. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and there's a 73% chance that I played Chuck on Happy Days. SB Podcasts may receive payment on the show from sponsors and guests in the form of books, giveaway items, discounts, or other remuneration. There's no way you would take advice from these dorks, but like Joe's mom always says, don't take advice from people you don't know. This show is for entertainment purposes only, and before making any financial moves, consult with a real financial advisor. So many great movies. Just, you know what I haven't seen yet this year? I've seen neither Home Alone nor Christmas Vacation yet. Got to see it's Christmas a, it's Vacation. It's already like the freaking 16th, man. Like, I got to get on my game. You have to. I love the movie Christmas in Connecticut. If you're looking for like a classic old movie. By the way, if you... An can, Elf. I haven't, haven't watched Elf, Elf this year yet either. Oh, free gum. You know what we're on is uh, we are trying to binge... All of the Star Wars. So it comes out this week. We've got special preview tickets, so we get to see it a little early. <laughs> but my wife has committed to watching them all so she knows the whole story. And she is just she's just getting through them. We're on episode two, halfway through it. Now, we, we've watched four and five already. So four, five, one, two. So we got to get three, six, seven, eight, nine. I think we'll skip the middle ones, the Rogue one and the, oh, and yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Uh, and the Han Solo one. But, oh, man, we got uh, we got a ways well, to go yet with just a few days. If you really want to watch Rogue One, you should have started with that one. Well, no, Rogue One goes between three and four, right? Oh, you're right. Or, or between... Yeah, three and four. No. Yes. Four, and, four and five. No, three and four. I can't remember where the hell it goes. It goes somewhere in the middle. It's it's between one of them. Yes. Cause you, should, you should watch them in the order that George Lucas demands that you watch them. I don't know. I just made that up. Interesting discussion, by the way, about that in Bob Iger's new autobiography, talking about how he didn't do a very good job with George Lucas when they bought Star Wars. He tried to make it clear they would not feel any obligation to use George Lucas's 
stuff. And when George Lucas sold it to them, he also said, hey, but I'll take anything you got. I'll take all your stuff. And it kind of looks like, and Iger didn't put it this way in his book, Bob Iger, the CEO of Disney, uh, that they took all George Lucas's stuff and probably put it in the trash. But yeah, we're not going that way. Um, hmm. And then George Lucas came out very angry and hurt. And Iger actually does a good job of owning it in the book going, you know what? I, I, I could have handled that better. I could have, I could have done a lot of things to make that better. So. Yeah, that one's on my list. I got another couple that I'm trying to read here. This, this break coming up. Well, you anyway, know, yeah, this is a time for, well, it's a time for big movies. This is a big movie I saw a couple weeks ago, uh, starring a little guy named Tom Hanks. Uh, this is a beautiful day in the neighborhood. We're doing an issue on inspirational people. Who? Mr. Rogers. Hello, neighbor. The beloved children's television host. So good to see you again today. You hired me as an investigative journalist. I don't do puff pieces. 400 words. Play nice. Mr. Rogers, I'm here to interview you. It is so nice to meet you. This piece will be for an issue about heroes. Do you consider yourself a hero? No, not at all. Oh, I like that. I insisted he read you before we agreed. And did he? Every article we could find. You okay? I'm profiling Mr. Rogers. On our program, I tried to look through the camera into the eyes of a single child. He's just about the nicest person I've ever met. I just don't know if he's for real. Lloyd, please. I just don't know if he's for real. Haven't you ever watched Mr. Rogers and thought that? Is that for real? Is that is that like, like is he really going to the craps table at night and, and, uh, Hanging out till 2 a.m., closing down the bar, that red sweater. This movie uh, stars Tom Hanks, as I mentioned earlier, playing the part of Mr. Rogers. It loosely follows an Esquire article that was written by a great writer named Tom Ajunad, who's a guy that whenever I see his name on anything, I read it. Last year, I saw another movie, a, a wonderful documentary called Won't You Be My Neighbor, which is all about Mr. Rogers. And then right about the time I saw that a year ago, I heard that this movie was following and, of course, starring a guy as big as Tom Hanks. My first thought, OG, was I don't want to see the one with Tom Hanks because documentary, we get the real Mr. Rogers. We get the real story. Now Hollywood's going to go make one up. So I kind of got dragged to the movie. Wasn't interested in seeing it. Say Tom Hanks doesn't make a bad movie, though. No, but there's even something better, which is this movie really isn't about Mr. Rogers. This movie is about the guy playing the writer and Mr. Rogers helping him see his life through a different lens. And so Tom Hanks really, even though he'll probably be nominated for Best Actor, I think he's a supporting actor. I think it really takes Mr. Rogers and shows you even more, fleshes out his character even more, uh, showing how he's how he was in in action, and I love what his spouse Joanne Rogers says about him, because I think lately, especially with this movie and the movie a year ago, people start painting Fred Rogers as a saint, and this digs into some questions about his character. It never answers them, 
and they're not big, deep secrets, but this guy helps so many other people deal with loss and death and war and divorce and all of these problems. How did he deal with that stuff? And you never, not really a spoiler in the movie, but you don't really get an answer, but you do get the fact that he's not a saint and you do get a nice look at his character. In fact, Joanne Rogers said very famously, she's like, don't, don't call him a saint because that takes away from how hard he worked every day to be the person that he was. And it's a great reminder that maybe we should all be a little nicer to each other. Oh, gee. Uh, huge thumb up. No reason for anybody not to see this movie. You should, we, we should fill the theaters. Um, watch it, video, wherever the hell you can watch it. Watch this movie. Two hours. Okay. Will do. Yeah, two hours very well spent. Well, Stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans. And all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. Visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender.